Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the next hour here on WFMU Freeform Station of the Nation, live from downtown Jersey City in that great state of NJ, which is, when you think about it, one letter away from NK. But we're not in North Korea, we're in New Jersey. And uh, I bring up that maybe strange-sounding connection because of the theme of tonight's show is Korea and Korean history and its connections into everything, including technology. I want you to stick with me through this episode. We have a return guest. Ed Park is with us this evening talking about his new novel, Same Bed, Different Dreams, which really is a phenomenal book. Uh, it's hard to describe this book in one or two sentences, but as, as I said, there's an overriding theme of Korea and connections, which you are going to hear about uh, in the interview. Now, you might be saying, well, I, Mark, I don't know any Korean history, and that's okay because this book explains all. And in fact, the beginning of this interview uh, as I start playing here in a moment, you're going to hear a little bit of Korean history just for context, and then we're going to go into the connections of this sprawling magnum opus of a novel, and we will reveal the technology connection, which is intimately connected to the enduring themes of this show. There are connections into tectonic themes, I promise. And um, if Ed Park's name sounds familiar, uh, that's because he was on the show. Those of you who've been listening for a few years, you might recognize that he was on the show during the pandemic on the July 20, 2020 episode of Tectonic. Ed came on and talked to us about reading during a pandemic. And in fact, if I have some time after the interview, I might go over, might review some of Ed's reading recommendations from three years ago because they're still very much relevant. And after you hear Ed talk about his own work in Same Bed, Different Dreams, you might be even more inspired to hear about uh, what Ed's recommendations are after you read Ed's own book, of course. If you're interested in links to the book and to other things that I may bring up during this show. Uh, as always, you can go to the playlist at wfmu.org and click playlists and comments. And if you're listening to an archive or podcast version in the future, you can go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm, and find the playlist link for November 13, 2023. And with that, friends, I want to go ahead and start this interview with Ed Park, talking about his new novel, Same Bed, Different Dreams, here on Tectonic on WFMU. Ed Park, welcome back to Tectonic. It's a pleasure to be here, Mark. Thanks for, thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you again. Oh, it's great to have you back on, Ed. You were first on the program during pandemic lockdown in July 2020. That's right. You were giving us reading recommendations for I remember that. living through a pandemic, uh, which is a great episode. People can go back in the archives and listen to it. This time you're here to talk about your new book, a novel called Same Bed, Different Dreams. This is just out, published by Random House, and it is phenomenal. The book features three interlocking plot lines, all telling stories of Koreans and Korean-Americans, and in my reading anyway, all highlighting the relevance of modern Korean history. There's an interplay of history and fiction here, which we'll get to, but let's start with one group that really was historically present, which was the Korean Provisional Government. What was the KPG? 
The KPG was founded in 1919, right after this, what they call the March 1st movement or the March 1st demonstration, which was the, this kind of nationwide demonstrations in Korea in 1919 to protest uh, the colonial rule of the Japanese. So Japan had been there for a while and it had made Korea a colony in 1910. But, you know, before that, obviously, Korea had been a self-governing country for for many, many, many years, hundreds of years, just, you know, the Yi dynasty alone, um, I believe, since uh, late 14th century. So this movement happened. Uh, it was a peaceful demonstration, but it, it, I think it caught the authorities by surprise. And then shortly thereafter, these Korean uh, patriots founded what they called the KPG, the Korean Provisional Government, headquartered in Shanghai, consisting of, you know, various uh, writers and, and uh thinkers and, and freedom fighters. And they elected as president Syngman Rhee, who had left Korea actually quite a bit before. One, one part of the book that was interesting is kind of tracking Syngman Rhee's career. He ultimately ends up as the first president of what is then South Korea uh, and becomes corrupt and you know steps down in 1960. But you know he had a long, long life. And I was really fascinated by this, the idea of this man who is so revered as like maybe the the soul of Korean independence. And he's in exile already. He's basically been in the US. He was educated kind of up and down the East Coast at um, you know, very renowned schools, including um, you know, Princeton and Harvard. And he was living also in Hawaii f- uh, for for a good chunk of that time. And so just the idea of him thousands of miles away getting getting the memo you're now the president of this and you know what can we do with that fact i was i was found that interesting so that that's kind of that is factual that really happened where the book really becomes fiction though is i wanted to look at other members of the kpg and also imagine other members of the of the kpg so uh either other koreans who were you know filmmakers or avant-garde poets and indeed, non-Korean figures, I, I don't want to give too many spoilers, but actors and uh, American journalists and writers. And so part of the fun of the book was imagining what that might mean. So in, in real life, in the real world, the Korean provisional government ends basically at the end of World War II when Japan loses. And uh, there, there's no there's no need to, it seems, to uh, fight for Korean independence. However, what happens is that Korea becomes split into north and south. So so the one of the conceits of the book is what if the KPG like actually stuck around through the 40s, 50s, 60s and indeed to the present day, what would they be trying to do? What would they be trying to uh, accomplish? Yeah, and as you say no spoilers, but I will tell the listeners that if you make your way through this book and I hope you do, you'll see some unlikely characters actual historical figures and, as you say, entertainment figures from the U.S., well-known people yeah. uh, from the 20th century who are named in the book, so-and-so is a member of the Korean provisional government. And you establish early on in this fictional KPG that they were willing to name members of the KPG who might not have even known that the KPG existed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so That's right. It right. opens up a lot of fun possibilities for who might be a member or might yeah. suddenly be named a member. I mean, that's kind of the the fun part about you know dealing with history and writing a novel. It's like you can actually make stuff up. I mean, it is fiction, so that was a very freeing moment when I realized, oh, I can I can have have fun with this and kind of to your point, like show how Korean history and American history are interwoven together. Let's talk about that split between North and South Korea. Of course, the precipitating event was the Korean War which began in 1950 and is commonly marked as ending in 1953, although, as you point Mm -hmm. out in the book, it actually never stopped. Mm -hmm. As I read the accounts of the war over several chapters in your book, the title of the book kept coming to mind, Same Bed, Different Dreams. Yeah. At least in this case, it seemed to stand for the two ideologies, communism and capitalism, that were at war and eventually split the country into North and South. But I know the significance of this Korean proverb goes well beyond that. What's the significance to you, Ed, of the book title, Same Bed, Different Dreams? 
it's one of those titles where I had it bouncing around in my mind for many, many years. My father had written it to me in an email a long, long time ago. I actually, it might have been when I was on AOL because I can't, I can't find the email anywhere. But it was so, um, I don't even know what the context was, but I just thought it was such an interesting proverb or maxim or truism, really. It's just in four words saying something very profound that no matter how close you are to someone, you don't actually know what they're thinking, right? On on one level, same bed, different dreams. You can think of, let's say, a husband and wife in the same bed, but maybe having having different thoughts. So, you know, I, I anyway, I had that title around and that very kind of personal domestic meaning was something I wanted to play with. But it wasn't until uh, kind of years later that I thought, wait, it actually... I think could express something about Korea. And as you correctly say, North and South Korea, as you know, anyone knows, it couldn't be more different, right? So South Korea, we we can think of like just as a as a shorthand, the immense success and spread of something like K-pop or K-dramas and and sort of this hyper-capitalist society, you know, with with some dark sides to be sure. But then you con- contrast that with North Korea, where if you are caught with a bootleg DVD of Friends or even of K-pop, really, uh, a K-pop CD, you know, the consequences can be really, really harsh. You can be imprisoned, you can be killed. Uh, or, I mean, that's what that's kind of the news we get coming out of there. So up until uh, right after World War II, these, this was one country. Even when it was under Japanese rule, this was one people for thousands and thousands of years. And, um, you know, speaking for myself, like my mom's ancestral family comes from way up north. She was born in, in Seoul, but, you know, her her family comes from a, a city called Shinwiju, which is as north as you can get. And my father's ancestral, you know, village was actually in the middle of Korea, where it's now you can't get there. It's in the DMZ, essentially. So this is always a haunting thing for me to think about if my parents could have imagined a unified Korea in their lifetime, I mean, that seems quite unlikely. And it's, to be honest, in my lifetime, I don't, I don't know if that'll happen. So in a way, the, this book is like um, a playing out of that, of that fantasy, perhaps, um, just imagining what if <laughs> the different dreams could be unified. I'd also say that you could also think of just Korea, you know, thinking of Korea itself as the same bed, the different dreams I think one of the things I also have in the book is different foreign powers having uh, different designs on Korea. So obviously Japan, which had repeatedly tried to uh, overtake Korea and and finally did uh, in the early 20th century, but also, you know, Russia and the US and China, like they all uh, have different desires uh, throughout history uh, upon Korea. And Korea is like this relatively small country. And so how does how does one country or one people, um, you know, kind of weather this interest from the outside? One of the ways I described this book to a friend was saying that you're making a bold assertion in Same Bed, Different Dreams, that Korea can be seen as the fulcrum of the last 100, 150 years of history, because there are interlocking connections throughout the book that you're revealing Again, some are fictional, but many are historical. Yeah. And I spotted, in one of the early chapters of the book, I spotted a phrase that I think, to me, served as a great thesis statement for the whole book. Mm. One of the main characters reflects on, quote, an optimistic moral, nothing is lost, everything connects. And throughout this book, you have dozens of characters spanning, as I said, over 100 years of history, and you're showing how everything and everyone connects. We were talking about the Korean War, which started in 1950, but you're making the case that everything that came before is still relevant today in 2023, Mm -hmm. in contrast to the Korean War here in the U.S., often being called the Forgotten War. Right. It's not forgotten it's not even over. <laughs> yeah, technically. The relevance and the connections still reverberate to this day. I think one of the things I wanted to show was that history is still alive and that these events that seem remote 
have reverberations throughout the decades that in our collective memory and in our popular culture, these things still have deep uh, tendrils that are worth exploring. And I think that quote from earlier in the book that you read of, of nothing being lost, that is sort of a mantra for for me as a novelist in the sense that whenever I'm just kind of going through life and reading this and that, like I'm always looking for things that that interest me that might maybe connect to something that I've read, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago, or just, you know, potentially will relate to something I'm going to discover next week. And so writing this book, which it took about nine years to write, actually, like, from writing the first page of it to, to kind of getting it through all the edits and revisions. And it's a, it's a considerable chunk of time, right? And as you're in that zone of, of novel writing, you are also digging deeply into your own memory and your own sort of prior readings and research and looking for things that connect. Like it's, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like kind of this altered consciousness where you're writing the story. And once you know sort of what the story is or the direction and the themes, all these other things, um, some of which you maybe haven't consciously thought about in years come back to inform the <laughs> to inform the novel you're writing and and uh strengthen it i think so you know now i can say that it was all fun but you know there were there were definitely times during the writing of it where it just seemed like there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff here and there were i even know there were a couple places where you know something opened up in my research and my thinking and i was like I'm not going to put that in the book because if I start down that road, that'll be another, you know, three months minimum of just like getting to the, getting to the end of it. So, um, you know, there, there, there was a, there were moments where I had to kind of restrain myself, but, uh, but overall, I think that kind of what you said, this idea of nothing is lost, uh, was, it was super important to me, um, in, in kind of making this a, a coherent vision. Something else that repeats throughout the book is, a simple question. What is history? In fact, after a prelude chapter, that sentence, what is history, is the first sentence of the book. And that I thought was a fascinating question to engage with as I, as I read this, because you're telling so many stories from Korean history that are historically accurate, and yet you're telling other stories that are fictional. And I often found myself wondering, Wait a second. Is is this one real? Is this history or is this fiction? What's the <laughs> dividing line? And right. you know, I didn't do the research. I don't know very much Korean history. I, I learned a lot of it from your book. Where is the the dividing line? And were you working out for yourself the nature of recorded history versus dreams? Let's call them in this book. Yeah, yeah. So the the sort of overtly historical sections or chapters in the book are called dreams. So there, there are five of them, dream one, dream two, dream three, et cetera. Those are the parts where I start with historical fact. I, I will say like most of the dates, I think all of the dates are real. Like when somebody was born, when somebody died, when this person was in this country, you know, those things are real. A lot of those scenes though are fictional. Like I wasn't there. So a conversation between Syngman Rhee and Teddy Roosevelt I'm, you know, I'm basing that on something that that did happen, uh, but you know, a fair amount of invention comes in, and I think that's sort of seen as understood when it comes to the historical fiction. I think the next level, which kind of makes these dreams, is when you take a historical incident uh, or a historical figure, have him or her intersect with another real person who they might not have met. And then invent a scene, and in, you know, I'm imagining what they might say, and that that kind of third level is kind of part of the design of these dreams, right? And this idea of a Korean provisional government that outlasts its real life incarnation. To talk about that question, what is history? I think this is what I was asking myself, and so I was like, I'll just <laughs> put it in the book. I found myself so deep into the history of modern Korea, and also you know, 20th century America, and especially my own, you know, history of our own life, you know, we're roughly the same age, our own lifetime and growing up in the in the 70s and 80s, and all that kind of history and pop cultural history. 
I think the answer to that question is the book. I realized that just recently. I think I pose the question to the reader and to myself, and the answer is this somewhat complicated but you know crazily coherent book. So some of history is truth, and some of it is fiction, and some of the fiction comes from a mind in this case, the communal KPG mind, but also the mind of some of the narrators, like Soon Sheen, who is, we can talk about later, who's one of the main narrators. Some of these characters trying to figure out what history is, and all of it, in some, the answer is, is the book, uh, if that's not if that's not too uh, uh, convoluted. But I, I think it's like the question posed in the first sentence is answered in the last sentence, by the last sentence. Yeah, there was an answer... I don't think this is a spoiler, but it's near Mm. the very end of the book. And I underlined this phrase, the real and the invented merge. It can feel like those forbidden dreams in which all things connect. So it seems, again, like the, the answer to what is history comes down to those connections that you're drawing throughout the book. Yeah. And, and this sounds a little grandiose, but just look, I'm the one who, I'm the one who wrote this book. And there's a way in which anybody can do this for themselves. Like think of the things that you remember. So I'm thinking of the, all the things that I found interesting over many years of being interested in history in general, but you know, also specifically uh, modern Korean history, all the anecdotes and events and um, incidents and themes that have stuck in my mind, like why did they stick there? Um, why can't I forget them? And in a way, this book is trying to make sense of that very personal history, this, the, the facts that I've collected over the years and, and some, somehow can't forget. One very interesting thing at the beginning of Dream 4, which is, you can call it the Korean War part of the book. I'll just read very quickly. The beginning of that section reads, we believe that the Korean War, 1950, dash question mark, never ended, just as we maintain that the National Hockey League's 1998-1999 season continues to this day, absent a legitimate victor. So that moment in hockey history was when the Buffalo Sabres, which is kind of the team I'm a fan of from having grown up there, uh, they lost in the Stanley Cup finals to the Dallas Stars. And that line, a variation of that line is something I wrote over 20 years ago, just as a whimsical thing like what if somebody was crazy enough to like because uh, there are you know it's it's tongue-in-cheek but there are hockey fans who their mantra for the sabers is no goal like that goal that the stars made didn't count because the guy's foot was in the crease and therefore that whole that whole series is illegitimate and so what if somebody was like there's a connection between that and the fact that the korean war never ended and so it's sort of a joke just sort of a connection. And it sat in my mind for a couple of decades. And then I was like, what if in writing this book and getting to this section is like, what would it mean if, if somebody really believed that, or what would the connections be between a hockey series, a professional hockey series and, you know, a war that involved many, many countries in Korea. And so, you know, I had to do some invention. I had to create some characters but I also used like things that I'd read about both the Korean War and about the Buffalo Sabres franchise, which, you know, I have a actually kind of a weirdly deep knowledge about. So <laughs> can you say something about the initials of the founders of the Buffalo Sabres? Of course. Yeah. There it's a it's a very famous family in, in Buffalo, the Knox family, K-N-O-X. And they were brothers. Seymour and Northrop Knox. And if you, their initials are SK and NK. So what if you saw them as somehow stand-ins or, you know, indications that this has something to do with South Korea, SK, and North Korea, NK. There's also the fact that the, the kind of famous fighter jet that was flown by Americans and, and the ROK was called the Sabre, the F-86. During the Korean War. During the Korean War, and why was it called the Saber? Why were or why were the Buffalo Sabers called the Sabers in 1970 when they're formed? So this is all kind of like just riffing. But what if you were to write a novel in which 
these things were connected. <laughs> and I actually, I'm glad we kind of came around to this because a lot of a lot of this book it does get into the Korean stuff. I'm, you know, my parents came from Korea in the late '60s, but I was I was born in Buffalo, so that's like kind of part of my inheritance as well. And I'm deeply fascinated in Buffalo history. So not just the Sabres, but also things like uh, in 1901, when McKinley was assassinated in Buffalo at the at the Pan American uh, Exposition. So there's a whole kind of section about that. And that's something that's, it basically, it was like a world's fair. I could read about that forever and about, you know, what happened. Uh, but how do I, you know, how do I fit that into some kind of narrative where it touches on Korea somehow? And that was kind of the fun of it, but also the, uh, there were, there were moments where it just felt like it was too much. Like <laughs> the connections were not, were not there, but eventually I think I, I got there. Oh yeah. I, I found it fascinating. I mean, Buffalo, New York plays an important role in, in this book. There's a through line of a character named Parker Jotter. I, I don't want to get too far into it, but he, he's based in, in Buffalo and he yes. is intimately connected. He, he's a, a former pilot of Sabres, that is the aircraft, in the Korean War, and then goes on yes. to have some important connections to the emerging story in the book. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with novelist Ed Park, talking about his brand new novel, Same Bed, Different Dreams. If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, you can go to the playlist at WFMU.org, click playlist and comments, or again, if you're listening in the future, find the playlist on tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm. And with that, let's go ahead and listen to the second half of the interview with Ed Park, in which we get into the connection with technology and the kinds of tech themes that we often cover here on Tectonic. Here it is. Earlier, you mentioned a character named Sun Sheen, and I wanted to touch on Sun Sheen a little bit because we've come to the part of the interview, Ed, where we have to talk about technology. Sure. <laughs> and your character, Sun Sheen, works, this is a lot of fun, you have him working <laughs> at a fictional tech giant called Gloat, G-L-O-A-T. And this company is kind of a combination of Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Apple. I mean, it's like an amalgam of all four toxic big tech giants. Uh, this company, Gloat, has hardware devices and social networking and video games, you know, I should say uh, addictive mobile video games, and lots and lots of surveillance throughout all of its products. For starters, I love the name you came up with, Gloat, referring to how people are supposed to brag about themselves online, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. called gloating. Soon Sheen works at Gloat. Other characters in the book either work there or have worked there in the past. But one thing that struck me about your inclusion of Gloat, because apart from having some fun with, you know, writing out bits of tech dystopia that I'm sure you had fun coming up with and, and some of the names and, and functions of, of these awful little devices <laughs> that this company creates. How does it tie in with the themes of same bed, different dreams? What I came away with is that Gloat, to me anyway, stood in opposition to the very human stories and connections in the book that we've been talking about. And I think it's important to name that because this tech surveillance and control growth at any cost approach is one that's very influential and very present in our society today. Mm -hmm. And one of the main themes of this radio show is how opposed that Silicon Valley approach is to the more human connections that I think are why we're here. Uh, mm -hmm. what we're supposed to be doing with our lives is not to be addicted by these these little devices and controlled by bajillionaires. 
Is it fair to say that gloat represents a contrast to these connections and the meaning of the phrase same bed, different dreams that you're trying to communicate in this book? That's actually a really good point. Obviously, tech and this gargantuan fictional company, Gloat, are a huge part of the book. The original draft kind of was mostly just Soon Sheen. It was just kind of a linear narrative. And so there was actually a lot more Gloat in it and more, you know, more devices, more uh, social media interactions, things like that. I found it ultimately a bit deadening. So I wanted to cut back on that just because a little goes a long way, right? And so just maybe the more comical bits or the the scariest bits, just enough to get the point across. And, And like you said, it's sort of a company that doesn't have an exact correlation to any one of those companies you mentioned, but it's like a amalgam, you know, just kind of in your mind, an amalgam of like the most powerful tech company you could imagine, um, which I think was was ultimately more effective. I wonder if what you're saying is we're all lying in the same bed of technology and all dreaming the same dreams guided by technology. There's a line in the book that a friend of mine uh, who, who read an early version, she liked it so much, she sent me a hat with this line on like a baseball cap with this line on it. And it's a line that Soon's young daughter has said to him. And the line is dreams are everything that's not online. I underline that same sentence. Well, I love that phrase. It's so, (laughs) I don't want to be like, I'm so great that I forgot that I wrote it, but it was so, um, like some, you know, it's a long book, so there's a lot of stuff in there. But I love that she picked out that one line. And I've actually been, you know, the book is over. The book is out there in stores. But I, I do keep coming back to that one line. And I think it speaks to what you're saying. I think the idea is if you're not online, if you're not kind of plugged into this very mediated, you know, social reality or uh, commercial reality, what have you, you can actually have your own thoughts and let's call those dreams. We could also think of, this is getting a little complicated, but the dreams in the book, right? The historical and historical fictional parts of the book, those come from a character we haven't talked about yet, but this author who goes missing, who's kind of off off the grid uh, named Echo. Uh, That's a pen name for this Korean author in the book. So I think you're right. I think it does all fit in and I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought it up. And uh, yeah, I do keep thinking about that line about dreams are everything that's not online. Yeah, that was exactly what I was driving at in this, this contrast between the technological approach and these dreams to make it even more bold. Maybe what you're doing here is saying what is history? History is the dreams that we still possess and that, and that still guide us and inspire yeah. us. And when you go online, those dreams evaporate because everything is calculated and manipulated and controlled. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to know what's history, that is to say what is real, mm-hmm. it's everything outside the grasp of the tech giants that, that's not locked down like that. I thought that was a very hopeful statement for Soon's daughter's story to to make for us. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, this is going to sound a little corny, but I do sometimes wear this hat that that my friend made me. And I do think about it a lot. You know, it's I, this we're, we're recording this kind of in the lead up to publication. So I am actually online a lot, just, you know, monitoring things. And um, I do I do Instagram and blah, blah, blah. But there is a way in which, just to tell you a little bit about <laughs> another way I spend my days is I'm writing in the mornings, I'm writing something new, and I'm writing on a manual typewriter. And this is the time where I'm not online and my phone is not in the same room. I put a record on the record player and I listen to the record and I do, I type for the duration of that side. And if I still feel good, I'll play it again. And so sometimes I'll just listen to one side of a record, you know, on and on. But there's something really um, invigorating. And as you say, hopeful, like, I I don't think we're, we're all so far gone, 
when it comes to technology to uh, that we that we can't get back to some kind of essential version of ourselves, some unique version of ourselves. Um, I'm you know I'm not a I'm not a luddite, and I do enjoy Instagram from time to time, and I've made some real connections there. But I do think there is a flattening effect, and I think it's good to preserve some time for all of us to preserve, you know, time for ourselves where we can actually, you know, have a coherent thought that's not being dictated by, you know, by an algorithm, for lack of a better word. And we should say, of course, the manual typewriter and the analog record player, those are technologies as well. So it's not being anti-technology, it's being against the technology that locks us down and, as you say, prevents us from having original thoughts or, or original dreams. Yeah. One other technology that keeps coming up throughout this book is the movies. There are a number of references to movies, movie theaters, movie actors, movie making, and there's a couple that I'd really like to bring up. I'll I'll bring up one or two instances because I just loved this aspect of the book. Here in this book, you're blending fiction and reality and you are making the point about the recurrence of fiction and reality blending and where better than the movies to to make that point. So here's one historical moment that you bring up when President Reagan was shot. Those of a certain age will know exactly where I'm going with this, but you describe it in the book how Reagan was shot by John Hinckley, who was obsessed with Jodie Foster, who had appeared in the movie Taxi Driver. So you have a movie actor who is president, right? and yeah. he was shot by a movie fan who was obsessed with another movie actor because of how she was depicted in a popular movie. So again, the blending of fiction and reality turned into a new dream. Well, I suppose that was a nightmare. And there are a couple of other instances of that where a movie, which is delivered as a, as a theatrical experience, becomes part of history. What are you trying to bring about in this use of movies in the book? I think part of it is, is I like movies, and I have thought about these movies for a long time. They affect the imagination, and they linger in memory I think the way nothing else does, maybe not even books, you know, like we remember liking a book and we maybe remember some lines, but scenes from movies, scenes from trailers, I don't know if it's in the book, but like thinking of the trailer for The Shining that I saw uh, when I was little and just being, I hadn't even, I wouldn't see the movie for years, but you know, that image of of, of blood seeping from the elevators. Um, I was a movie critic at the Village Voice for several years. Um, and wrote about film for other places as well, and just kind of became this cinephile. But also, like growing up, that's what you did. You just, I just went to see every kind of movie because that's kind of what things were like back then, right? You could watch TV, but it was a, it was a bit of a monoculture, and there wasn't that much great to to watch on TV. So you went to movies for that larger than life experience, and and seeing these things on the big screen was deeply formative for me. So I tried to capture that. Uh, There's one character who we kind of maps onto my childhood and and teenhood in that way. And, and he kind of has a list of like favorite movies from, uh, you know, some year in the eighties. And that's like kind of very much the way I thought back then as well. Um, For the purpose of the book, I, revisited a lot of these, you know, cinematic, uh, either masterpieces or uh, black sheep, or I don't know what the what the term is. And looking through the lens of same bed, different dreams and 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 Korea and history, I just found them fascinating for what they what they were putting out there. And and then, you know, and then my job, I think, as as the novelist is to weave these together in a way that that feels fresh, even if you haven't seen these particular movies. I, I will also add. Uh, there's mention of the TV show Mash, which was a huge show uh, when when you and I were growing up, and that uh, season, that series finale was, you know, watched by millions and millions of people. It was, it, I think, you know, the maybe the most popular thing uh, that had aired for a long time. But I, you know, I have many memories of watching Mash and being a little bit confused because 
I was always looking for anything related to Korea and there was nothing except this very popular show that was, you know, filmed in Malibu or wherever. Most of the actors were not actually Korean. And I actually read some of the book that it was based on, which is this really, um, I mean, some of it seeps through into the, into the show, but it's like kind of this body, you know, quote unquote humorous book, but it's, it's quite sobering to read it. So I wanted to take all these elements of how Korea and the so-called forgotten war, the Korean war, to what extent did, did it find its way into uh, American popular culture and therefore, you know, the popular psyche. And that's one of the things I wanted to explore in the, in the novel. And just on that final episode of MASH, I'll let the listeners discover this on their own, but the denouement of your explanation or description of that episode was, was so great because there's a way in which the finale ends that helps link the entire MASH series mm -hmm. better into the history of the war than one might have expected. I, I thought that, yeah. was, that <laughs> was just really brilliant how you did that. Thank you. You know, I have to confess, like I had seen it. I remember watching that finale, but I didn't really remember it. And so I looked online and I, I kind of read a description. I was like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess that happened. And then I was flipping the channels and there's that, there's like a channel called like me TV or something. It's, they just play oldies. And it was that last episode. Oh, and I was no. like, <laughs> it's like the gods of TV. So I watched it and I found it like very, um, it was it was pretty intense, I have to say. So yeah. anyway, so that was just a, a a neat coincidence of me turning on the TV at the right time. As we're recording this, Ed, this book is just about to be published, but you have had some reviews. I see on the cover, there's a blurb from Jonathan Lethem, past Tectonic guest himself. Yeah. Um, I understand that you're a great writer and a great, a great guest on the show. I understand the book has already received acclaim from Publishers Weekly. Yeah, they just named it uh, one of the top 10 books of the year, um, which is another, you know, just a, just a great, great honor and surprise. Congratulations and, and well-deserved. Thank you. Um, I wish you all the best with this book launch, Ed. Nine years of hard work on this and you've really worked hard and you delivered. This is an epic book. And before I close, I, I just have to say I have only one complaint about the book. Uh, multiple times while I was reading this book on the New York City subway, I came very close to missing my stop. Oh, that's the best review. The, yeah. the book was so engrossing. And one time, I'm not kidding, I actually did miss my stop, <laughs> which was highly inconvenient. Um, but in all seriousness, the book was engrossing. It was brilliant. And I recommend it to all Tectonic listeners. The book is Same Bed, Different Dreams by my guest today, Ed Park. Ed, thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you so much, Mark. It's, it's been great. This, is, this has been awesome. Just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the remaining 13 minutes and change. And then the great Dave Mandel will come into Studio A and present all of us with another sparkling episode of It's Complicated. That's a prog rock show. I think you know that by now. And you should listen to it. After that, we're going to hear from Amanda and Jim the Poet with Bad Animals. And then Brother Daniel Blumen comes on at 9 p.m. Eastern, takes us all the way to midnight. It's a great Monday evening lineup, or early Tuesday morning if you're in Europe, I guess. Or some, who knows what day it is in the future when you're listening. Anyway, keep listening to WFMU is the message. And read Same Bed, Different Dreams by Ed Park. Uh, thanks to Ed Park for speaking with me. Um, as I mentioned, when Ed first showed up on Tectonic in July 2020, Ed and I are personal friends outside of 
the interviews, and um, I think you could tell I really enjoyed his book. And we, we mentioned Jonathan Lethem as well, another past Tectonic guest who has the, the blurb on the top of the cover of Same Bed, Different Dreams. Lethem writes uh, that the book is, quote, a gravity's rainbow for another war and unfinished war. So a, a connection there to Thomas Pynchon, if there are any Pynchon fans out there. I have read some Pynchon, but I never got around to reading Gravity's Rainbow. But from what I have read uh, by Pynchon, it, it, I, I, can, I can see the, the, um, the reference, the connection there to Ed's book. Really, um, really worth taking a look at. And thanks to everybody for posting on the comment board about... Uh, about connections to Korea, the Korean War. Uh, we have some <laughs> we have some comments about boy bands uh, like BTS, and I believe there's a book recommendation as well about Korean boy bands. So we're we're all about Korea, Korean history, and Korean culture here on Tectonic this evening. I just wanted to say I just have a a, a few minutes left, but I want to say something about this key phrase that, that I underlined and that apparently um, another early reader of Ed's book really liked and made it into that ball cap for him. The phrase was, dreams are everything that's not online. And given that this, this book uh, is, is about dreams, the title mentions dreams, there are dreams woven into the, the, uh, the stories. I thought it'd be worth um, dwelling on that just for a moment because this book, this, sorry, this radio show week to week is talking about what is technology doing to us? What, what does online mean in terms of what's real, what we consider to be real, what we consider to be important, what we are investing in and building to be enduring in our lives? And... I, I underlined that phrase in the book. I mean, it's, a, it's over 500 pages, this novel. But that was one of the key sentences in the entire book. Dreams are everything that's not online. And I've been thinking about that because, as, as I said in the interview, I really feel like the online experience tends to, to flatten things uh, because of the, the corporate need for surveillance and control and, uh, and, and, and ultra rationality, just being able to atomize everything into little decision points and little bits and little pixels. And, you know, when you do that to dreams, they dissipate, they evaporate. And to, to the extent that we think part of our human experience is our dreams, as opposed to some quantifiable, you know, algorithmic reality, uh, the, the, the phrase is really correct, that when we're not online, what we do that's not online is really uh, a, a, a better expression of human life and human exi- of, of, of reality, of not just human. I mean, it's just reality is what is not being calculated and controlled and when we're not being spied on by corporations and governments. Certainly, there are ways to have great experiences online. Uh, I mean, I, I don't mean to say that, that, that online destroys everything and every aspect of human experience. I mean, that would be ridiculous. What I'm talking about is the kind of online that I often rail against. I mean, for an example, listen to last week's show about what the tech villains were doing, are doing to our online experience. That's the kind of online I'm talking about here. The, the surveillance, corporate, quantified, uh, predictive, algorithmic kind of reality is a very uh, impoverished version of reality, as opposed to when we have dreams and hopes and aspirations and real relationships. And I know s- some of those can be, can be uh, amplified or, or expressed online. Uh, there's nothing, nothing inherently bad about using digital technologies for that. But when, when we are uh, subject to the overriding corporate control and feedback loop, that's when the dreams die. That's when the dreams evaporate. And that is a, 
that's a, a, a feel or a vibe, as the kids say these days, that I got from this book, that where people were really uh, aspiring and reaching to express themselves, to live into their creativity, to, um, to, uh, to explore their identities, um, all of those were, were conducted outside the reach of this um, big tech amalgam that we talked about called GLOAT. It was funny, actually. The book mentions that the employees of this mega big tech corp uh, called GLOAT, they don't even know what the acronym stands for, G-L-O-A-T. And so there's just this um, this uh, informal shorthand that they say around the office, good luck on all that, and that's all they have. Good luck on all that. Maybe that's what GLOAT stands for, but no one ever knew. I wanted to... Um, <laughs> I wanted to read a quote that I came across thanks to uh, DJ, another friend of mine, DJ Erwin Chusid, who sent this over. This is a quote by the, writer, the American writer Edward Abbey uh, from his work, Shadows from the Big Woods. And, it, and this is Abbey expressing, I think, a similar thought to what Ed Park is expressing in his book. Here's what Edward Abbey wrote a few years ago. Our cancerous industrialism reducing all ideological differences to epiphenomena, has generated its own breed of witch doctor. These are men with a genius for control and organization and the lust to administrate. They propose, first, to shrink our world to the dimensions of a global village, over which some technological crackpot will erect a geodesic dome to regulate air and light. At the same time, the planetary superintendent of schools will feed our children via endless belt into reinforcement-trained boxes where they will be conditioned for their functions in the anthill arcology of the future. The ideal robot, after all, is simply a properly processed human being. And again, that was Edward Abbey from Shadows from the Big Woods talking about our cancerous industrialism and its ultimate goal of spitting out properly processed human beings who will be uh, roboticized for use by the global planetary machine. And that's what I am resisting here on Tectonic. And that's what I suggest to all of you, if you want to join in, to resist these forces. Again, it doesn't mean never using a digital device. That's not what it means. Never use a computer, never quantify, never, never write a computer program, never count anything. I mean, that, that would be ridiculous. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is uh, we need to resist the forces of surveillance and control that Ad Edward Abbey is writing about and that are alluded to in Ed Park's book and that I talked about last week and that Brian Merchant a few weeks ago in his book on Luddites was railing against and what Kashmir Hill in her book on facial recognition two weeks ago was warning against week after week after week. I'm warning, I'm trying to warn everybody that this is coming, this is present and we have to resist it. And I appreciate Ed Park being on the show and sharing his work with us and with the world uh, offering us visions to a new way of considering our dreams and our role here on Earth. You do have a little bit of homework next week, which I'm going to get to, but first I need to remind you that you are listening, friends, to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, in New York City and Rockland County, at 91.9 FM, and online at WFMU.org. And your homework that I mentioned if you've been listening, you already know what it is. But for the first timers, let's go over it, shall we? Until next time, friends, I want you to avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. And we only have one possible uh, song that I could play as my outro. This goes out in honor of our buddy Ed Park. Have a great week, everybody. See you next time.
And good evening, friends and neighbors. Welcome to another installment of the program, It's Complicated, an hour of Prague and Prague-adjacent music. I'm your host, Dave Mandel. I'm here every Monday at this time, 7 p.m., following hot on the heels of the Tectonic Show. And welcome. Great to be here always. I'm going to begin tonight's show with a long track. Well, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of the tracks I play are long, but this is long. Specifically because I'm just getting over a cold and I'm going to need to blow my nose a few times. This should give me time to do that. We're going to hear a track from a French group called Way Dorji. I've never, I've never actually heard their name said out loud, so that may be a mispronunciation. Don't hold it against me. This is a group, they would be generally considered a Zul band, Z-E-U-H-L, I think is the spelling. Uh, it's basically like a subgenre, more or less invented by the French group Magma, and they in, sort of launched an entire sound and aesthetic, and the, these guys would be, I think, grouped under that heading. So we're going to hear a track from an album, a self-titled album, released in 1978. Uh, what can I tell you? Not much, except what I've already told you. A bit of bit of Canterbury sound here, maybe with a lot of electric piano. You be the judge. This is the group Way Dorgier.
Thank you.